Hello, my name is Jonathan Spangler. I'm Vice President and Chief Patent Counsel at Nuvasive in San Diego. You are listening to IP Fridays. Hello and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert, we will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Thank you for tuning in to episode 29 of IP Fridays. First of all, we want to thank all the people who attended the Meet the Bloggers event, which we were happy to co-host uh, during the INTA meeting in San Diego, as well as our own IP Fridays meetup with uh, listeners who attended the inter-meeting in San Diego. So thank you very much. Our special guest today is Jonathan Spangler, who is Vice President and Chief Patent Counsel of Nuvasiv. He will talk about the intellectual property strategy for Nuvasiv, uh, which is a company active in the field of spine surgery. Before we jump into the interview, we have stories from Ken about Facebook biometrics and drones and privacy issues. So first, uh, why not just jump into the story about drones. Ken, what do you have in store for our listeners? Rolf, over the past year, drones have become more and more popular, and not just for commercial use, but for personal use. Drones have many uses. They are used as remote control toys, to take pictures and videos, and soon they'll deliver products to consumers. Aside from the threat of drones to invade privacy, they carry many positive attributes, such as providing health services. Given that drones are a new and developing technology, the laws in regards to drone use are still premature and vary from state to state. There have been many petitions signed in order to create privacy laws for drone use in the United States. These efforts come up against drones that can be used to photograph and video people and things in non-permitted areas. There are already numerous laws in different states that have been created to enforce privacy. Nevertheless, the Electronic Privacy Information Center otherwise known as EPIC, claims that the FAA has yet to create privacy laws in regards to the use of small unmanned commercial drones. A few states have established laws, such as Illinois, claiming that you cannot pester hunters with your drones. In Wisconsin, you can go to jail if you place a gun on your drone. And in Oregon, you must ask for your neighbor's permission to fly a drone over their yard. Virginia was the first state to pass a drone law. As time passes and drones become more common, more laws regarding their use will be created and are expected to be enforced. Drone use is a new realm. Drones will likely help to make everyday life easier and may even save lives when disaster strikes. Although drones can be misused, new laws will likely help to curb privacy abuse. We'll continue to file this issue as new laws take flight. Thank you, Ken. This was really enlightening. During the inter-meeting, I had the chance to interview Jonathan Spangler, 
I already introduced him briefly in the beginning of this podcast episode, and we had the chance to talk about the overall intellectual property strategy, but also go into real interesting details like the filing strategy or the software they use. So here's the interview. So I'm very excited to be joined by Jonathan Spangler. If you don't know who Jonathan is, he is VP and Chief Patent Counselor of Nuvasive. Nuvasive is one of the largest players in the medical devices industry and they are focusing on spine surgery. So thanks for being on the show, Jonathan. Thank you for having me, Ralph. So can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and maybe also about Nuvasive? I'd be happy to. So I'm in my 20th year of uh, practice, graduated law school in 1995. Um, Spent the first few years in uh, private practice, and then I've actually been in-house for the last, uh, coming up on 16 years. So um, a great deal of my experience has been in-house trying to formulate IP strategies, manage the, the processes of uh, IP capture and freedom to operate uh, from early stage through now, um, Nubasa being the number three player in spine. Wow. And um, I see you have a remarkable revenue now. You started as a very small startup and now you have like 700 million uh, annual revenue or something? Yes, the first year I started in 2001, that was our first year of revenue. Uh, there were 30 of us and the revenue was around 2.1 million in sales. And then, uh, yeah, since then it's been a, a rather meteoric uh, growth up to the, you know, above 700 and we have we have our eyes on a billion so that's our our next major milestone that we hope to achieve soon cool and you have around 1400 employees now i read i've reading and i think that may be a little outdated okay um, you have so, even more now yeah i think we're wow. closer to 2000 at this point cool and uh yeah it was largely here in san diego uh, at least early on mm -hmm. um, we are now doing business in Uh, almost 40 countries mm -hmm. um, and and so that that has also been an enjoyable part of of the growth to uh, uh, you know try to try to anticipate where we're going to be what rights we will need once we get there even though the market entry may be uh, you know years away uh, so that's been uh, a, a fun part of of the growth at invasive right and you are not only producing in the US, but you also have production sites all over the world, basically, in your major markets. And From a manufacturing perspective, we have uh, facilities in the US, uh, one that is captive, that was the byproduct of a joint venture, um, where we actually invested in, in this early or smaller uh, manufacturing facility, and now it's actually part of, uh, of Nuvasive. Uh, but the, the rest of our manufacturing is uh, either in Germany, um, we are anticipating some um, additional manufacturing in other countries. But, but by and large, the manufacturing has been in the U.S. and then we, U.S. or Germany, and then we ship it elsewhere. Jonathan, um, maybe you can give us a brief history of the spine surgery. So traditionally it has been an open surgery, but now it goes more and more into invasive? Correct. Um, I'll draw a parallel between spine and uh, knee surgery, arthroscopic knee surgery. Um, back in the day, if you had a problem with your meniscus or your knee or the like, um, it 
the only options that were available were large, open, um, very morbid procedures that had a very long recovery period. Um, now, of course, it's an outpatient uh, procedure. I mean, some athletes are treated early in the week and play that weekend, right? Um, we're, we're not there in terms of spine surgery, being able to play in a professional sport at the end of the week. Wow. Um, however, we are, um, we're entering into the new era of, of outpatient spine surgery. Um, we have a number of surgeries uh, and surgeons uh, who are actually accomplishing outpatient spine surgery uh, of, of a fusion variety. And that's, that's a big difference than, from a discectomy where they're just trying to go in and, and um, maybe snip out a little bit of uh, a bulging disc. Uh, this is actually taking the disc out, putting an implant in, um, and having enough stability and the like to, uh, to, to then have the patient um, go home. Um, even if it's not outpatient, and that, that's by far and away the, the rarity, um, we're still getting patients out of the hospital in 24, 36, uh, 48 hours, which is, uh, you know, um, a far cry from the way it used to be. <clears throat> Very cool. Um, you started out really small and then you grew into a really huge company. Maybe you can talk a bit, a little bit about the early days of Nuvasive. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, there, there are some pretty, um, there are classic aspects of the Nuvasive story insofar as it, it, uh, it actually started out in the garage of an orthopedic surgeon here in San Diego, um, a very uh, innovative uh, man who really founded the company off of a couple of ideas. Um, I think fortuitously, um, presented those ideas at a time when um, it was relatively easy to get funding. And I, I have it on pretty good information that it was largely funded off of a PowerPoint and, you know, a smattering of, of patent applications that were wow. on file. Um, and so what started off with very um, kind of academic, um, you know, IP, insofar as that's really all we had, there were no... Um, prototypes, no, um, you know, nothing that had been used clinically. Uh, it was really an idea. And so classically, an idea is presented and you get funding, um, or in this instance, it, it, it took place. Um, and then from that, um, you know, and that was a, a venture capital group that uh, was the first to invest. Um, then came the follow-on rounds as, as, the idea was actually made more tangible and progress was made on the on the various concepts that were part of those early applications. Um, so, you know, that's, I think it's inspiring from an entrepreneurship perspective to see uh, it, that there always is a start. And, and I always like to know how someone actually came about with, with the idea and kind of the early days. Um, so it's been it's been fun to uh, to see that then the massive growth ever since then because uh, clearly we have more than a handful of patent applications and a handful of products. Right, and um, I can imagine um, a lot of research went into your pro uh, products, and um, they are all protected by intellectual property. And I think patents played a really important role in the success of your company. So. 
Can you give us an idea about the size of your IP department, like um, an over brief overview? Sure. At present, we have a team of eight, and that's including myself. There are four attorneys, uh, two full-time patent searchers, and then two administrative uh, support uh, that help out with the docketing and, and aspects of the, the prosecution. Mm -hmm. And um, you are handling all... Um, IP activities, including trademarks, right? Yes. In this department. Yes. In the United States, we we directly uh, prosecute all of our trademarks and then about 85% of our patent applications. Um, the 15% that we would outsource um, go to firms that are also handling related litigation or mm -hmm. uh, inter parties review proceedings. Uh, pertaining to some of our families. So in order to keep all the variables as, uh, you know, really handled by the same group, that's that's where 15% of the portfolio is, is handled by outside firms. And talking about, um, already about like um, in-house and giving things outside, do you also um, use like things like the Madrid protocol or the Madrid system to also handle all your international trademark protection in-house basically? We do file via the Madrid protocol um, and we, we've been pretty active in that area because we've always anticipated that uh, our market, while we started in the US, that for us to be uh, it, the success that we know we can be, Uh, we, we are going to eventually have a, a very prominent international uh, business. Uh, right now it's about 20%. That will grow to 50% uh, and beyond in, in due course. Mm, wow. So um, can you um, tell us more about like how many patent applications you currently have or patents in the U.S. and abroad? Where and um, which countries are important for you? Sure. The portfolio is, uh, on the patent side, it's, it's more heavily weighted in the United States. And that stands to reason because we're in the medical device space and, and uh, with methods of performing surgery being patentable in the U.S., it, that's where a lot of our IP in the U.S. Uh, lies. Um, in the international scene, then it, it, it kind of flip-flops. So trademarks are really, well, there, there are more jurisdictions, of course, that we're going to enter into, but we also find that uh, our international strategies is probably more reliant upon trademarks than it is on the, on the patents because uh, you simply cannot patent all your technologies everywhere. Right. And, you know, the, but, but you are filing patents for the most important devices, not the methods of treatment, but the devices also abroad, like which countries are um, most important for you for patent protection? Sure. I would say it is by far and away the, the highest priority technology. Um, that's, we, we characterize our, our technology uh, for patent purposes in, in one of four tiers. Uh, tier one is commercial and highly differentiated, and that is, those are the, the market differentiated, um, really the game changers, the things that, that are our signature um, products in the marketplace. Um, tier two would be non-commercial but strategic. Mm -hmm. 
So they, they, they may have applicability for some of our competitors, right? Um, or protection for advanced features or functionality that we're, we're not commercializing now, but we really, um, you know, we're, we're excited about the option to do so um, in due course. Tier three is commercial, but less differentiated. Um, everybody has to have, um, in all in in the spine space, everybody has to have um, cervical plates and certain things that are that are you know there are 130 of these these devices on the market. Okay, um, less differentiated. There's there's less room for um, significant innovation in those those spots. Uh, but yet we want to we want to protect what we can protect in the areas uh, geographic areas that make sense. Um, and then uh, tier four, it's non-commercial and non-strategic. I, I call that the land of misfit toys. <laughs> okay. Um, um, insofar as sometimes you file uh, on technologies that, you know, they're, they're nothing more than ideas. And then over time, you realize that maybe that was a dead end. And so they, they may start out as uh, tier two mm-hmm. um, or tier three or tier one, but then they, they can find their way down to uh, a less prominent position. Um, I lay out those four tiers because depending on the tier of the technology, that will drive the, the filing strategies um, as well as even the annuity strategies and, and where, um, you know, geographically where we go. Um, so to answer your question um, in a very roundabout manner, um, for tier one technologies, we will uh, go in those geographies where there's a predictable and meaningful IP um, legal framework that it would, uh, you know, where we could actually enforce or defend um, the IP that we so painstakingly achieve in that area. So Germany is, is very prominent. Japan's very, very prominent. Uh, the UK, um, in certain respects. Um, Australia, these are, these are also big markets for us. Um, but, you know, there are many, many countries uh, where we won't even bother. So uh, you are mentioning um, Germany and then Great Britain. Do you file directly to Germany or do you go through EP? Through the European Patent Office. It, it, it depends. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And do you use PCT to g- gain time, or do you just directly after the priority year file into the different countries or regions? That's a, that's a good question. Um, early on, I think we were more reliant upon the PCT, and it, more recently, we tend to, if we're going to file uh, in those geographies, we will file uh, direct. Right, because PCT just buys you time. Right. You're just paying money for an additional one and a half years. That's basically the, the big thing. So mm-hmm. if you already have a clear strategy, tier one goes into these and these and these countries, then you don't need it, right? Correct. Right. Oh, interesting. And then you just decide whether you want to file this with the European Patent Office or maybe directly with Germany and Great Britain because that would be even maybe cheaper than EP. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, interesting. All right. So, um, <clears throat> um, 
If you want to be successful with uh, translating your developments in your research into patents, you need to educate your staff basically to tell you about these new ideas. So how do you capture the intellectual property of your of your researchers and of your developers? For us, uh, communication and involvement are vital. Um, and by, by that I mean for us to be immersed in the development process, we, we have a very, very close relationship with our marketing development counterparts. Um, and, and so we try to uh, really understand what they're trying to achieve, um, try to understand the landscape, to appreciate the distinction between what we're doing and what others have done. Um, we are fortunate, I believe, to be able to work with, very closely with surgeons. And we have a mm -hmm. cadaveric lab here in San Diego, um, six stations, state-of-the-art, uh, where we will bring surgeons from all over the world to basically train them on our technology. And that's one of the things I'm very proud of um, is our commitment to education because um, I firmly believe there's a responsibility. If you're going to innovate, you have to safely put that innovation in the hands of those who will use it. Uh, at the end of the day, it's someone's mother, son, cousin, brother, someone who's loved is under the knife, and it's our responsibility to make sure that case goes well. Um, a byproduct of our focus on education is that we have incredible access to the people who are actually using the, the devices. And so um, as much as we listen to the engineers who say, you have these five features, I think these two are the top two. It, it can very well be the case that it's two separate features that stand out to the surgeon. So for us, and, and we also um, not only participate in, the, in these cadaveric labs, um, it's not uncommon to go to actual surgeries. And you, know, you, you get cleared to, uh, to have access to the, to the cases. Uh, but to listen to a surgeon when he or she is either um, complimenting a product or criticizing a product, it gives you great insight on what you should be protecting, right? So if there are five features and there are two that they absolutely love, well, let's, let's try to focus our claims on, uh, as best we can, those two features. So that right. is, that's very important for us. And um, before we record this interview, you told me about that you're not only educating um, your researchers with the feedback from the surgeons, or you're not only educating the surgeons about your technology, but you're also educating patent examiners. <laughs> so that's an interesting approach. Tell me more. <laughs> well, I think that's, that's one of the great challenges, is to take technology that um, frankly, by definition, it's, it's new, right? Um, or at least you hope it's new when it goes into the patent office. Um, and to have someone in the patent office um, quickly get up to speed, as much as we all want to think we're, we're uh, very clear and concise writers, there's always the constraint of time that the patent examiners just simply have limited time. And, and so what we 
if we can help facilitate their learning curve, um, you know, it, it will truncate and shorten that, uh, you know, dependency and the, 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 the period within which we get that patent. Um, personal interviews have been uh, a real important part of our U.S. patent strategy. Um, they're also, we've been fortunate to actually uh, participate in some uh, programs at the patent office where we can go in and educate the entire art unit. Uh, they have um, yeah. partnership summit meetings um, once every year or two. And the ability to, to go in and have a show and tell, you know, bring a doctor in with you and, and just field questions for these, these people. Um, that's, that's been helpful as well. Very cool. Mm -hmm. And um, you also talked about um, it's helpful to know your enemy. <laughs> yes, yes. You are trying to know your enemy to find out more about your enemy. Who is your enemy? <laughs> well, that, that sounds a little harsh, uh, but, you know, from the art of war, uh, they say that knowing your, no, no, we'll say knowing your opponent to be less combative. Uh, but in terms of the patent office, You know, uh, the patent examiner is, is probably the single most influential person that you will be dealing with regarding your technology. Um, at least, you know, the duration of time before that examiner is certainly um, more so than, than the appellate process and so forth. So one thing that we've used to great uh, success is something called patent, patent advisor, which is basically... Um, a report on all the statistics from your particular examiner, um, maybe the, the art unit, um, how often they allow cases after an interview, how often they will reverse themselves after you file a notice of appeal, um, what the success rate is upon appeal. Um, you know, so it, it really gives you great insight as to how to respond to that particular um, or engage with that particular examiner. Um, so that's, that's a relatively recent product and every office action we get, uh, we run the report and talk about. Very cool. It is pretty And cool. you have this in-house basically? Yes. It's, cool. it's now a, a, a LexisNexis product, but we partnered with a small company out of Minneapolis uh, that um, originally came up with this patent advisor um, product and it was very clear to me early on that it made a lot of sense. Very cool. <laughs> you also talked about an IP recognition program inside Newvasive um, to incentivize probably the transfer of knowledge. Um, can you tell us more about this? Sure. This really came about at the inflection point of the first to file um, through the AIA and the notion of trying to get people to help facilitate the prompt disclosure and capture of their, their ideas. Um, I did a lot of research in, in terms of what other companies had done and, and the like, and what we came up with is one... Of, of recognition as opposed to um, an incentive program. Okay. So we, <clears throat> excuse me, um, 
we put a premium on innovation. It is, it's actually part of our corporate tagline. So mm-hmm. it's Nuvasive Speed of Innovation. And <clears throat> we have always, you know, our mascot is a cheetah. Okay. And it's, it's because we're, you know, we're, we're, if we can't be faster than our com- competitors, um, you know, what are we doing? Um, so speed has always been a, <clears throat> a core component of our, our corporate culture. And, uh, and, and so the ability to foster the, um, the prompt disclosure, it really comes down to, um, elevating the, uh, the, making them more notorious. And, and I mean that in a nice, nice way. Uh, but elevating the, uh, prominence of the inventors. So we have, um, awards on a quarterly basis where in front of the entire company, they come up, they get plaques. Um, we, we speak a little bit about what the innovation, what it is and why it's important. Um, so it's not just a plaque. It's, it's trying to educate the rest of the company as to why this is a big deal. Um, why clinically what they came up with is improving patient lives. Um, and, and, and in that way, um, it's really been, uh, it's been quite successful in terms of, uh, engaging the people through mere recognition as opposed to saying, here's a Starbucks card for 50 bucks. Um, you know, we've been successful without having to give out money, uh, for that. Right. You already mentioned the um, AIA, the Invents Act, um, and there came a lot of changes with it, and you also had to adapt, and uh, you already mentioned the first-to-file um, um, problem, basically. There have been some other things, um, like inter-parties reviews, and these seem to have quite a big success uh, at the patent office, we see, I mean, people see um, a lot inter-parties reviews filed now. Um, do you also uh, have experience with this? We do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <clears throat> um, we do. We actually have a, a large number. Um, so I can speak in generalities <clears throat> uh, because a lot of these cases are, are still in the appellate Sure. Um, process and ongoing. Mm. Um, but I would say that the inter-parties review process, by and large, um, is uh, is a good thing in relative to putting such questions as the, as the validity of a patent in the hands of a jury. Um, and obviously, that's, that's a uniquely uh, American uh, notion to begin with. Um, and so I think that the the uh, patent review board, the uh, patent, uh, the PTAB, like essentially they are, um, they're incredibly bright. Um, I think that there's there's been a pendulum um, effect insofar as they were really killing almost everything right out of the out of the blocks. Um, it's starting to moderate a bit, um, and I think they're still trying to figure out where that proper line is between true innovation and a patent that shouldn't have been granted. So, um, you know, we've, we both benefited and, and, uh, you know, we've been on both sides of, of the IPR, um, experience. Right. And, um, we'll see how it unfolds. Let's see. <laughs> mm-hmm. That will be 
very interesting for, for, for many companies. I mean, not only in the medical technology field, but also um, now probably it's really hot with the IT related patents. <laughs> True. So, I think probably the biggest impact will be on, on patent litigation in the US. Yes. That, you know, district court patent litigation. Right. Um, the, the number of stays that uh, come about when there's an IPR instituted, it's, uh, it's very high. Um, in certain jurisdictions, um, and and I think what we're going to probably see, and this is uh, you know just my personal opinion, is that the number of IPRs that are now concluding um, and now being appealed to the CAFC, the CAFC is going to be hit with a tidal wave of appeals, and so um, at some level it seems like whack-a-mole. Um, where we're trying to um, make one thing more efficient and, and fast, and then because we've we've done it over here, now you know there may be um, an unintended consequence over you know somewhere else. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, you talked about something like automated invention disclosure and how you use this to tackle some of the changes that were introduced with the Invents Act. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. As part of the AIA, and again the first to file, um, we, we view that as a, a good inflection point to move from a more manual um, IP capture process and protocol and a manual or a, you know old school uh, patent review committee where everybody's meeting, uh, whatever the, whether it's monthly or quarterly, basis um, and then deciding yes or no on the various disclosures uh, when you have the benefit of time you know you can and it's first to invent it gives you a lot more latitude um, now we have uh, this this it's a two-tiered invention disclosure process where essentially we have an, an initial invention submission that is relatively high level that should be uh, something that the engineers can can compile and submit within an hour. Um, that will then be reviewed by the IP team. If it's deemed sufficient, we will then send it on to the patent review committee through workflow. And and then essentially, and if it's not um, sufficient a sufficient disclosure for us to tell exactly what it is and whether you know it falls into categories one through four um, then we'll kick it back to the in inventor to add to that and so forth uh, it goes to the patent review committee with a recommendation from the IP team we rec we, we we view this as a, a category one a tier one technology because of that we advise filing in these countries um, the patent review committee it then routes to them and they will uh, essentially give us a thumbs up or thumbs down um, if it's a thumbs up it will go back to the inventor to basically fill out a, a more robust uh, comprehensive disclosure that will be the basis of the provisional and we have um, time requirements uh, and targets for for the initial disclosure and the the secondary, the full disclosure, um, but, mm -hmm. but by and large, the 
the goal is to make it more automated, virtual, um, and fast. Right. Um, now that we jumped into already the workflow inside your team, basically, um, we can talk a little more about the tools that you use. For the automated invention disclosure, you use the same tool as for your online docketing, right? Yes. Yeah, that is, uh, Ipendo is the name of the, um, the, the product. Um, it was formerly a self-standing company from Sweden and they were purchased by CPA Global uh, a few years ago. Um, for us, and I, it's worth noting, for us to have an in-house IP team that isn't full of administrative support, it's absolutely vital to have a reliable uh, docketing system along with on-demand paralegal support um, or administrative support if need be. And so we have uh, Ipendo for the docketing as well as the invention disclosure. Um, we also have a, a search request portal, so essentially a, a workflow-based functionality within Ipendo um, that helps facilitate the request of patent searching uh, for our freedom to operate efforts. Mm -hmm. um, and, and really, at the end of the day... But you have different products for the freedom to operate, basically. The searchers then use a different tool for freedom to operate searches. Well, Freedom to Operate spans several tools. Right. So the, the search request um, process is something that's administered through a workflow in Ipendo. Um, that basically helps um, facilitate and make efficient the, the transfer of, of uh, you know, the requirements, what the invention is, and, and maybe uh, top assignees and things of that, things that the searcher um, will use to then go out and get the most meaningful results. Um, when they get that search, then we use uh, Orbit and Questel in terms of the databases and the, and the search tools. Um, and they also have some analytics that are helpful. Um, when the search results come back from the searcher via Orbit or Questel, um, then the attorneys will review that. Um, and we have a new tool called Clearstone IP, which is essentially a way, a way to characterize all the independent claims of all the patents that you review so that later on you basically create a library um, to the point where as you, as you go back and, and repeat freedom to operate assessments in that same general technology area, you already have, have them characterized and you can remove um, certain patents by essentially, um, you know, omitting if, if they, if they don't have certain claim features, you remove that and all of a sudden what, what was a, a full circle in terms of a pie chart will go down to some, some subset thereof. And as you can eliminate the features that are not in your product, it's a really, um, uh, it's a really slick, um, tool. Very cool. Yeah. <laughs> And you already mentioned that you um, have this Examiner Insights tool that's called Patent Advisor by LexisNexis, right? Yes. So that is probably something very helpful for our listeners, especially um, we have a large number of in-house uh, people listening to the podcast mm -hmm. and 
maybe that's really interesting for them to see and know how what kind of tools you are using. Um, so if people would like to get in touch with you to, you know, share their experience with other tools or with the things we talked about, how can they um, get in touch with you if they wanted to? Sure. I'd be happy to field any questions or compare notes. Uh, my email is jspangler. It's all one str string. J-S-P-A-N-G-L-E-R at nuvasive.com. N-U-V-A-S-I-V-E dot com. Well, thanks for being on the show, Jonathan. It has been a pleasure. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It's a great, uh, great program. Thank you very much. If you want to learn more about Nuvasive, you can go to www.nuvasive.com, N-U-V-A-S-I-V-E, nuvasive.com. So last but not least, we have a very cool story about Facebook and biometrics and how the biometrics can affect privacy. Ken, tell us more about this. Ralph, Facebook is the world's most popular social media platform. As of 2015, it is used by 1.44 billion people. In the past, Facebook has faced issues with privacy and data breaches. Recently, a man from Illinois has filed a lawsuit against Facebook, claiming they have violated privacy laws with their facial recognition technology. You may be familiar with facial recognition. Each time you upload a photo, Facebook attempts to tag each person's face, and more often than not, correctly naming each person. The tag suggestion stems from Facebook's use of biometric data to recognize each person's face. Since Facebook stores every person's biometric data, this means they are collecting and storing data on a person's biometric data allegedly without permission. Carlo Lacata claims that even if you changed your settings so you were unable to be tagged, Facebook still collects your data. Lacata has stated, quote, if there's a data breach and hackers get it, that would be a total mess, end quote. Facebook does not appear to ask their users about storage of biometric data, and this is where the main privacy concern stems from. There have been other privacy concerns with other companies in regards to facial recognition and data breaches, but Facebook is the largest company to face this fairly new privacy issue. Lakata hopes that Facebook will comply with the state of Illinois' legal system and end its collection, storage, and use of other users' biometric facial data. Facebook has not responded yet with a comment. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com slash feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com slash iTunes, and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast, or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. 
None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only, and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.